again, nice to see some familiar faces as well. Great to be able to look at this fantastic couple of passages together. Uh, two passages, that doesn't mean double length sermon, don't worry. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, pray that you would stir our imaginations, that we would see and understand how glorious what you have planned for us is. And we pray this that our lives might be marked by hope and excitement rather than fear and anxiety. Amen. FOMO. The fear of missing out. It's the thing that even though you're utterly wrecked and you just really, really need some proper pyjama time and to go to bed early, you still go out because you're afraid you might miss out. It's the fear that means you just can't commit to any invitation because something better might come along and so you have to wait and you have to click the, uh, the button of evil, as I call it, the maybe button. It's... It drives a lot of what we think and do. Now, it might seem like quite a minor thing to address. We're thinking about fear, and yesterday we looked at the fear of being killed in a terrorist attack, and today we're talking about the fear of missing out. That might seem like a slightly massive category shift. And yet, and yet I think that it is one of the fears that drives more of our decisions than almost anything else. Day to day, decision by decision, And I also think it is one of the reasons, the fear of missing out, it's one of the reasons why we feel like we're not making much progress spiritually, why many of us are very stagnant and not growing. Now some of us are standing on the edge, we are weighing up the whole Christian thing. We're kind of convinced, we've been looking at the Bible, it does seem to make sense, Jesus is God's son that his death is the only way to pay for sins, he really did rise from the dead. They're the facts, yep, they, they make sense. But the truth is that the cost of obeying Jesus looks awfully high. And it'll mean some radical changes to the way we live. And if we're honest, we're holding back from making that step, from committing ourselves to Christ, because we fear that to do so means missing out. We fear that we'll end up with a life that actually is not as rich, not as good, not as full. We fear it won't be worth it. And the same goes for many of us Christians. Whatever we sing in church on a Sunday, Monday to Saturday, our lives are dominated by the same desires, the same dreams, and the same fears as everybody else. We want out of life what everybody else wants out of life. And we fear that if we really obey Jesus, if we really live for him, if we go all in, It'll mean missing out on a whole heap of stuff. It'll cost us more than we'll get back. And so we live kind of half-hearted, mediocre Christian lives. No great joy and no great difference between us and the world. And what, what stops us from going forward, what stops us from growing, what stops us from really making progress is that we fear we'll miss out if we do. We fear that to live a wholehearted Christian life when we will get to the end and think, I missed out on so much. Now I want us to look briefly this morning at two passages that address that fear, that fear that tells us that if I trust in Jesus, if I live for Jesus, I will end up regretting it, and I will miss out on life. Firstly, uh, live for heavenly reward. You've got the, the outline on your sheets. So Luke 12 is full of Jesus' teaching that to be a follower of his means sacrifice now and reward later. Sacrifice now and then reward later. 
when his kingdom comes in full and he brings his people to paradise. And verses 22 to, to 31 really call us not to worry about this life. They say, don't worry about the basic necessities. You've got a heavenly father. He knows what you need. You don't need to stress. Don't worry. God knows what you need. God will provide. And then he says, verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. The pagan world runs after such things. Your father knows you need them. But if your life is not to be obsessed with, with physical things and and daily needs. What should it be filled with? Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you as well. When you know you've got a loving Heavenly Father who sustains the universe, well, it doesn't mean you stop caring about how to provide for the family. Oh, you know, it's all right, we've got a God. There's no need to put in the Tesco direct order this week. God knows we need to eat. No, of course not. You still shop for food. You still work hard to provide. But you don't approach those concerns with the same obsession and anxiety of people who don't know that there is any God. When you know God is looking after you, you approach daily life differently. And so he then sharpens his point in the last three verses. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to give your money. Don't be afraid to give your time to serve God and others. Don't be afraid that if you do so, you'll you'll miss out. You'll have less. Now here he mentions money specifically, but throughout the section, Jesus talks more broadly about the things that we give up to serve him. Career, security, relationships, reputation. Give generously. Serve sacrificially because far from missing out, you're investing and his heavenly reward will be wonderful. But, 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 but what, if, what if giving sacrificially means I don't have enough for a flat deposit for years? What if serving with the, with the kids' work or committing to lead a small group means I miss out on opportunities to meet a partner? What if getting involved in sharing the gospel at work or inviting colleagues to church or to to a midweek service nearby the office means I'm mocked and I get sidelined at work, written off as a religious freak, not trusted, and and my career stalled, stagnates? What if that happens? Now, part of the answer comes in verse 31. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. But that is not a blanket promise. You know, there are plenty of people who've given up realistic prospects of marriage to serve on the mission field or to support tiny churches in unreached areas of this country, and they've not married. There are those who've given sacrificially and have not been able to buy the things that their friends and contemporaries have bought. But two verses later, Jesus gives the answer that, that really sustains us, and the words that should fear Uh, that should free us from the fear of missing out. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. That's Jesus' basic point. If you give, serve, sacrifice to him now, you will not miss out because he will repay you more than you can imagine in the next life. 
But at this point, most of us have a massive, colossal problem. We can understand Jesus' words with our head, but they just make no impact on our hearts, because frankly, well, heaven doesn't sound that great. I mean, we, the truth is, most of us have got this sort of weak, pathetic little view of heaven. Either it's a, an eternal church service that just never ends, or it's kind of floating around in an ethereal, spirity world that isn't quite real, where everybody speaks softly and walks barefoot, kind of like the, like the elves of the Lord of the Rings. You know, very spiritual, but so dark. And no one's allowed to speak loudly in heaven. No shouting. And then we're surprised that that vision doesn't motivate us to give everything for Christ now. Well, of course not, it's dull. And unless you and I have a solid grasp of what God has actually promised the next life will be like, we will never be motivated to live for him properly now. Why would I risk my reputation to be honest about my Christian faith with my friends if the reward is wandering around barefoot like an elf or floating around in a cloud? Instead, our lives will just be dominated by the same hopes, the same fears, the same career trajectories, the same tick list of house and car and better holidays that everybody else is living for. And so everybody who lives around us will look at our lives and see nothing different. Nothing will make them think, tell me about the hope you have. And we'll be utterly incapable of living for God in the way we know we should. We'll, we'll always live with this crushing sense of, the words I sing on Sunday are just nothing like the life I live. And so we need to, we need to expand our, our vision to the true vision of what God has promised. Just as we were saying yesterday, we need a true vision of who God is to be free of fear. We need a true vision of what God has promised to be truly motivated to live for him. And that brings us to Isaiah. Now, warriors are people with plenty of imagination, but not enough optimism. And most of us here, I know, are warriors. So let's use that imagination for a positive thing and learn to fire our imagination with God's vision through the prophet Isaiah of God's heavenly kingdom. So Isaiah writing, as we, uh, as we heard um, yesterday, to, to God's people in around 700 BC, that sort of time, and they're facing all sorts of physical threats. God himself has promised judgment upon them, but he's also promised them, after judgment will come blessing, and one day, one day here in Isaiah 65, he says, I'll do more than just restore you to the land of Israel. I'm going to give you something much, much better. And this is, a, this is a vision, not of the restoration of bringing back the exiles to Israel, but the restoration of the universe at the end of time. So there you go. Firstly, creation 2.0. So we're back in Isaiah 65 on page 700 and something or other um, in your Bibles. And verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I'll create Jerusalem to be a delight. And as people a joy, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Now the very first sentence of the Bible begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here we read God's promise that the day is coming when once again he will roll up his sleeve and with a delight that matches his power, he will create, he will craft, he will build an entirely new cosmos. 
He'll snap his fingers, speak a word, and physical reality will disappear. And then he'll speak another word, and a new physical reality will come about. It's a mind-boggling thought. All physical matter will stop and then restart. Now there's a surprising amount we can learn just from these words. First it will be physical. Like the first universe, the one we live in, will be physical. We know that because the word create, which is used here repeatedly, is a word that is only ever used in the Bible. The Hebrew word create, barach. It is a word that's only ever used for making something physical. God is not going to get rid of physical matter and we'll just become disembodied spirits. Now this will be another version of what we're in now, but better. It will be uh, like this universe. It will be creation 2.0, a new version of what we're in. We get some idea of what it will be like from the best of what's here now. And create um, also tells us something that it's, uh, it's going to be different though, because create is also a new word. So it is, it's not creation 1.2, it's a tune-up of this. It is going to be a brand new version of it, creation 2.0. God's not going to patch up this universe, you know, bit of gaffer tape and, and you know, keep it running. He's going to remake it. It'll be like all that is unspoiled, unexploited and beautiful in this world, but better, newer, brighter, richer and permanent. The Germans will run the engineering. French will cook the food, and the British will not have any hand in the weather. It will be a, a phenomenal new creation. Now, verse 17 is not saying that we won't remember loving relationships when it says the former things will not be remembered. It's not saying your memories will be wiped and you will not recognise one another, that all friendships will go and will all be strangers. Verses 18 to 19 explain what's happening. Uh, heaven will be a place marked by joy and delight. Joy and delight and gladness. His point is that nothing in the new creation will remind us of the pain and the disappointment in the old. That it, it is as if they just won't be remembered. It's a pictorial way of saying all the pain will go. And there will also be a new Jerusalem in this new world. Do you see from verse 18? I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and a delight. Now, Jerusalem is the city where God dwelt symbolically with his people. Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. In other words, God's point here is that he will be at the heart of the new creation, and he will dwell with us. Now, perhaps that sounds quite obvious. Well, of course, it's God's creation, he'll be there. But so often, when we think about heaven, God is not really involved. You know, heaven is an idyllic tropical island, sun-kissed white sand beach, warm sea, lapping gently at your feet, palm trees with a gentle breeze just twitching the fronds, and you're stretched out on a hammock. Or it's a spectacular, fresh powder, glittering mountains all around. And God's only role is to make it snow at night and sun to shine in the day. But God is at the very centre of what the Bible teaches of the new creation. The reason that the new creation will be spectacular and good and full of delight and joy is because it's the sort of creation that God will make and God will dwell in. And he is rich and generous. And he is fun 
And he is adventurous and he is powerful. It will be all those things because it will be like him. And just as he made us to find deepest joy and fulfilment in knowing him, so we will enjoy in eternity nothing more than knowing him deeply and richly. All our deepest longings are actually longings for God. All of our deepest longings are longings for him. And they will be satisfied because you and I will know God face to face. There'll be a new Jerusalem, a new city where God dwells with his people. And you and I will be there. Now that God would delight, um, give us things that we'll delight in is great. It makes sense to us. But verse 19 actually tells us more than that. It says God will take delight in his people, in us. Now that is remarkable. That God would delight in us. I can sometimes just about get my head around the fact that through Christ's death, I'll be able to come into heaven. But I kind of feel like I need to just keep out of the way, just in case God sees me and says, oh, hang on, how did you get in? Security! <laughs> you know, you just, yeah, I might just about make it in, but I'd better stay out of the way. But that's not what it says. It says, he will take delight in his people. God who sees into the darkest pits of our souls right now will delight in us. The picture is of a parent who has a teenage child who goes properly off the rails, rebels, destroys themselves with abusive relationships, drugs, ends up basically as the slave of a gang. And the father goes out at great cost and great risk and great danger, rescues them from the gang and carries this emaciated, trembling, skeletal form to a rehab hospital. And slowly over the months, they rebuilt physically and the father spends everything he has to see the, the child restored and then finally the day comes when the, the child is recovered and able to return home and the delight on the parents face to see what was ruined in the one they love has now been made right that's the delight God will have as he sees us healed and happy and finally the people he created us to be God will delight as he sees the work that was begun by Christ at the cross, that's being continued by his Spirit right now amongst us, completed on the day when we see him in glory. That's why God will delight. And we will delight to see his face as he smiles upon us. We will rejoice and he will rejoice in creation 2.0. Now the second uh, section, the central section really, verses 20 to 24, live long and prosper, they're, they're basically a poetic saying, a poetic way of saying, we'll live forever, but it won't be boring. We'll live forever, but it won't be boring. Verse 20, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Now this is poetry. Verse 20 is not saying people will die in heaven in the new creation. It's saying um, 
there will be in the new world none of the things that we lament in this world. He's giving examples of things that cause sorrow that will be banished, and he's using images that we can get our head around. So he uses, it's like if you imagine somebody in um, 1890 promising um, their son, look, when you, when you marry son, I will give you a coach and horses of your own. Yeah, wonderful. The son's a little bit slow and doesn't get married until 1930, at which point the father gives him a car. Now that, you wouldn't, wouldn't say, oh, well, he's failed in his promise. He promised a coach and horses. He said, no, 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 of course. A coach and horses promise in 1890 is fulfilled by a car in 1930. That's the way it works. That is what, what is being promised. And the things that God promises here, they are they're using earthly language, this earthly language, to describe realities that will make sense to us in the new creation. So we mustn't get too literalistic, because he's talking in coach and horses language about automotive reality, if that makes sense to us. Okay, um, no one will ever, what is he saying? Well, he's saying that no one's ever going to cradle a baby who spends a few days stuffed with tubes in a neonatal unit before finally giving up life. No one will retire from work to spend time enjoying the family only to be torn away by an aggressive incurable cancer within six months. Now in Isaiah's day, living to a hundred, verse 20, was a big deal. But he says, everyone will live long, happy, fulfilled lives in the new creation. Indeed, verse 22, the way he pictures it, his horse and coach's language is, we'll live like trees, as in the days of a tree. Now it's poetry, the point isn't you know, to be literalistic, but every now and then it's fun to be literalistic. So here's a tree. That is a bristlecone pine tree, the location of which is a closely guarded secret, somewhere on the west coast of America, and it's called Methuselah, which should be a clue. It is old. It is very old. It is 4,852 years old. 4,852 years. When it first sprouted through the earth as a sapling in 2834 BC, there were no pyramids in Egypt. Stonehenge was still a new build, covered by the NHBC scheme in case it fell down. This is how old we're talking. Now Isaiah is clear that we will live forever, because as he puts it earlier on in his book, in chapter 25, verses 6 to 9, God will swallow up death forever. But even if we only lived as long as a tree, that's still an incredible 4,852 years. And I think the reason he talks in this language is we can just about get our heads around living that long. And it just gives us a, something tangible we can grasp onto to help us think about what it will be like in eternity. Now think about what you could do. You could build your own house, as he says here. Plant a forest of slow-growing trees, cultivate a vineyard, dig a cellar, make your own wine, set it down for 60 years, and still have at least 4,650 years to enjoy it all. Even if you're as bad at DIY as I am, and have to spend the first 250 years just learning how to build a house, you've still got thousands of years to do it and enjoy it. Two and a half centuries, I should be able to put up shelves straight. And key to this vision is verses 21 and 23, which I think actually make very similar points. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not toil or labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for there will be a people blessed by the Lord. There will be work, but it will not be vain 
toil. It'll be fulfilling and worthwhile. And the main reason is because we'll enjoy the fruits of this. You won't slave away for your boss to take the credit. You won't work away for an economic crash to completely devalue your shares. We will live in what we've built. We will drink what we have brewed. And the work itself won't be pointless and vain. The work will be rich and rewarding and fun and challenging. Now, I don't think, I, I genuinely don't think we can get our minds around living forever. I think it's actually a terrifying thought when you really think about it. Eternity, Groundhog Day eternity. And that's why Isaiah gives us this vision. That's why God talks to us in language we can understand. Because it would be wonderful to live that long. To have health and vigour, to learn musical instruments, to take up new pursuits, to travel widely and not feel a tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock of time squeezing, of the sand running down, of all the things you'd love to do and can't do, all the things you wish you had time for and don't, all the things you wish you had energy for but your body will no longer allow you to do. And therefore he gives us something to help us see and it helps us to grasp what really will happen. And what really will happen is that we will never again have that feeling on the last morning of a holiday. You know that feeling? Oh, back to work. Never again will we get the sense of the autumn of life, of the days getting shorter, the years passing faster, the grains of sand running out more quickly. Never the sense that the body is creaking and its best days are long behind me. And of course... There is no death lurking on the horizon, the dark cloud that is approaching every one of us. <coughs> You'll never have a relationship cut off in the new creation. You'll never have a funeral to attend. There'll be no cemeteries in the new Jerusalem, no mourning. Why will those things be the case? Because, verse 23, God's blessing will be upon us. In the original creation, the tree of life stood at the centre of the garden, and when mankind rebelled against God, we were cut off forever from his tree of life. But once again, when we come back to God who is life, we will know eternal life. And so we'll live as long as trees, <coughs> as we eat the fruit of the tree of life. Now verse 24. Uh, this isn't talking about ESP. Before they call, God will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The point is, there will there'll be no need to pray in the new creation. Because we'll have everything we could need or want. We'll not need to grow in faith to hang on until God fulfills what he's promised. Because we will have it all. We'll see God face to face. And we'll have all that we could need. It's a wonderful, wonderful vision of the new creation that we have. Live long and prosper is what God wants for every one of us and will give to us. And then finally, uh, verse 25, they all live together happily ever after. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now this is a classic Bible language for restoration and reconciliation of the natural order. Now wolves and lambs do eat together on this world, but only one of them tends to be doing the eating. But it will be very different in the new creation. There will be no danger for a gangly little lamb taking its first steps to frolic in a pack of wolves. Extraordinary thoughts. 
There won't be predators and prey. I think that's literal, not metaphorical. The new creation is going to be so radically different that there'll be no harming or destroying anywhere within it. Animals will not need to kill each other to eat. Now, what that means for human food concerns a number of us, and uh, I don't know exactly what it means. The thought of an eternity without a bacon sandwich or a steak is more hell than heaven to many of us here. Um, I mean, how can you have a bride with a veggie burger? I mean, seriously. Uh, who knows? I think you can trust God to sort it out. Maybe lettuce will taste like bacon and tree bark will be steak in the new creation. I don't know. I can trust God to sort it out. I do know Isaiah 25 promises that will be the finest of meats at the heavenly banquet in the new creation. You know, God can sort the details, but he promises that the finest of meats and the beautifully aged wine leave the details to him. The slightly odd note, though, actually, is, uh, is not that uh, lions and lambs or, or wolves and, um, uh, and lambs will eat together. The slightly odd note, I think, is the serpent. Dust will be the serpent's food. Why the down on snakes? Why, if wolves get to play around with lambs, do serpents have to eat dust? Now, the, the, the answer, of course, is that he means far more than the, the species serpents when he talks about um, this. It's not just reptiles that he heads. The point is that way back at the beginning of the story of mankind in the Bible, way back at the beginning of history, when Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, he came in the form of a snake. And so God promised that one day he would, he would destroy the work of the snake, Satan. In Genesis 3.14, he says, Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then he promises an offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Christ came on the cross in his death. He crushed the serpent's head. And now for eternity, the serpent will eat dust. He will suffer for his wickedness. Satan will suffer in hell for all eternity for his wickedness. He will not be let loose. He will have no opportunity to ruin the new creation the way he's ruined this one. Isn't that great? There will be nothing to tempt you in the new creation. Nothing to enable us to ruin it for others. You'll see a stunningly beautiful person and you will not lust after them. You'll just appreciate their beauty. You'll see someone far more talented than you and you will not be provoked to envy You'll just rejoice in their talents. We are headed, if you trust in Christ, for an eternal feast in God's garden city, filled with believers from every culture, and at the heart of that new creation will be all of God and the blessings he brings, and none of sin and the misery and death that flows from us. So look forward with hope. And fill your imagination with heaven. You know what it's like when you're, when you, you're going on holiday. If you ever have the fortune to be able to, to go away on a nice holiday during the British winter. You know what it's like. You, you keep screenshots on your laptop of where you're going. The holiday brochure doesn't get put away in a drawer. It's tacked up in the kitchen. Your phone, you, you download it on your weather app, the weather of where it is that you're going, and you check it pretty regularly, because, oh, oh, 26 degrees and sunny, yes, please. 
You meditate, in other words. You imagine. You allow that reality to filter into your daily reality and it changes how you feel. As you shuffle like veal calves onto the tube, and sort of wet on the outside from the rain, wet on the inside from the sweat because it's so hot on the tube, breathing into somebody else's armpit who decided not to shower that morning, you think, in two weeks, three days, seven hours and one minute, I will be landing at the hotel and in the pool. Three weeks, two days, seven hours, no minutes. You, you, you think like that. We need to do that with heaven. We need to drive it into our hearts to imagine it more, to pray it through, to discuss it, to read about it. If we want to be better at coping with the difficulties and disappointments of our lives, we need a firm grasp on heaven. If we want to be more confident to give up stuff now to live for Christ, if we want to to live more free, liberated, robust, fearless lives for him, we need to know what's coming. If we do that, we'll be less hostages to circumstance and more filled with joy. And the question really comes, when we've got this heaven to look forward to, what on earth would not be worth giving up for it? What on earth am I afraid of sacrificing now if that's what's coming? Yes, there's two questions I really want to ask you as we close to, to think about. It's worth writing these down. Questions to think through this week, to discuss with one another. What would God have to promise you for a life of sacrificial service to be worth it? What would God have to promise you in the new creation for a life of sacrificial service now to be worth it? And then secondly, What would you do now if you were utterly convinced of how wonderful the heavenly reward will be? How would it impact your decisions now if you were utterly convinced of heavenly reward? How would it impact how you spend your time, your money, who you spoke to about Jesus? I'm sure you're thinking of other places to drive it. What would God have to promise you in the new creation for a life of sacrificial service to be worth it? And what would you do if you were utterly convinced, utterly convinced of heavenly reward? I am. Um, I, I love the, the quotation from uh, from the Puritan Thomas Brooks um, about this. I think it. Uh, I'll tell you it in a moment. It. I think it's lived out by, um, by two Iranian women who I read about not so long ago. They spent three years having been converted, covertly handing out gospels on the streets of Tehran in backpacks that they carried around. They handed out between 20,000 gospels over three years. They were hunted by the secret police who knew someone was doing it but couldn't find them. Eventually, after three years, they were thrown into an absolute hole of a detention centre. And writing from there, Mariam uh, Marizea, they, uh, they said this, they said, how kind of God, he knew that we were exhausted by the running around and had spent all our money and couldn't afford to keep travelling around handing out the gospel. So he put us somewhere where everybody comes to us. Because everybody wants to know why it is that we're in prison. So we get to tell people every day about Jesus. And it's such a miserable place that the secret police will never come in here. Why would you think like that? Why would you rejoice that you're in prison with no hope of getting out? 
The Puritan Thomas Brooks summarises what they understand. For a close, remember this. Your life is short. Your duties are many. Your assistance is great. And your reward is sure. In view of this, faint not. Hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make an amends for all. Heaven shall make an amends for all. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that this is true, that your heavenly reward will more than make up for anything and everything that we could give up to serve you now. Help us, therefore, to have confidence, to commit our lives to Christ and to commit all that we have in his service for your glory and our eternal joy. Amen.